0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutRunCancer.org.
1: From the Milton Met studio and the radio TV building in Indiana University. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News. The Woodstock Music and Arts Festival was 50 years ago. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered for four days of music, peace, and love. And today we're going to talk with three people about Woodstock, about what it was like and what's been its lasting impact, what has changed. And we're, we were happy to have Crosby, Sills, and Nash. Uh, joining us here for the first part of the program. So our guests are Mark Allen, former indie Star music critic, Michael McGurr, who's a professor of the, in the Indiana University Department of History, and Alex Jaku, who is uh, who went to the original Woodstock. If you have questions or comments, please join us at uh, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also uh, send us questions for the show on Twitter at noon edition or at news at indiana public dot org. Thanks for being here. Fifty years ago, that doesn't seem possible, Alex. I, got, I have to ask you. I mean, fifty years ago, how, how did you decide you were going to go to Woodstock?
2: Well, I didn't even I didn't even know anything about it, but I was um, in school at the University of Rochester and had a couple of friends that were very much into music and. It's kind of a cliché, but there I was with two guys in a van heading down the highway to Bethel, New York, uh, for a concert because music was a passion of mine, and it was a great opportunity to hear some great bands.
1: Okay, so I have to ask, you know, it's been 50 years ago, but can you recall, like, you know, sometimes people say, well, when I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, I was like, oh, my gosh, uh, when you saw the crowds, what was your reaction to it? Was it what you expected?
2: Um, you know, we were stunned just by kind of the, the amount of traffic, but uh, no one knew that that many people were going to show up. And here there were, you know, they say 400,000, 450,000 people. And you're looking at a hillside just covered in bodies with a sort of a stage in the middle of a grass field. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of overwhelming.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, neither Mark nor nor Michael went to Woodstock. We've already established that they were a little too young to go <laughs> to Woodstock. So, Michael, you know, I, you you teach a course in the 60s, and I'm sure that Woodstock comes up. I mean, what, what are some of the things that you talk about in your course when you talk about Woodstock?
3: I want to point out I was I was hip enough to go to Woodstock. Oh, okay. I was just too young. <laughs> um, <laughs> Woodstock is the the perfect um, emblem of ways in which countercultural values had developed in the 60s, particularly the fascinating way in which people's notion of love, uh, especially in music, went from being primarily about heterosexual couples to be a much more encompassing idea about community, about the ways in which people – of different ages, different classes, different groups could be bound together. One of the things I say that's defining about the 60s is uh, crowd pictures. Um, if you think about it the 1950s, or I don't know, Elvis and John Foster Dulles. Um, this, you think of the 60s, you think of Martin Luther King, the March on Washington and the huge crowd at the Reflecting Pool Woodstock is the peak of that that's the biggest crowd shot of all and of people um, really manifesting this notion of ha- how a broader idea of love creates community how music has the power to do that so like the moon landing in its own way Woodstock is a culmination of one of the critical developments of the 60s
1: hmm So Mark Allen was a, the Indie Star music critic for a long time, also wrote for Nouveau. We've established that. Um so as someone who's uh, been a student of music, I mean what what Woodstock mean to you in terms of your sort of career aspiration?
4: Well, when it happened, it meant nothing to me because I was ten, and uh the Mets winning was way more important to me than than Woodstock. But um you know it's the the festival by which all other festivals are judged, and um you know i and I did go to the twenty fifth anniversary concert, but you know it 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 does not have the long lasting impact i mean this is the festival we're still talking about it fifty years ago for a reason because of all the great music it brought us because of the kind of a cultural awakening. That it brought us, you know, I think the original tickets were $6.
2: It was $7. $7. Yeah, and then $8 at the door, and it was $13 for two days, and I think $21 for three days.
4: Right, and the one that I went to was $135. (laughs) So, you know, a little different time. But, um, you know, and you can look at the longevity that many of those acts are still working, which is kind of amazing. I mean, nobody expected uh, musicians to last into their 70s and, and even 80s.
2: Now. Yeah, Santana mm-hmm. just played in Indianapolis
1: again. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you were there at the 25th and I, I, know, I read the piece that you did on it and you talked at some point in the piece you mentioned, you know, who, who knows what people will be saying 25 years from now, but this one wasn't quite like the original.
4: Yeah, and, the, and the, it shows you, I mean, they're really not saying much because the, that concert did not have the impact, but 50 years ago, we're still talking about it, just like we're talking about the 60s. You know, we we, we got over the, you know, people don't talk about the 70s that much, or the, and certainly not the 80s, unless that was your decade. But, um, you know, the 60s, we still talk about it.
1: So we're talking about Woodstock today uh, on Noon Edition. Of course, the concert uh, 50 years ago started on August 15th. Today is August 16th, so we would have been in the second day of the concert fifty fifty years ago, the festival fifty years ago. If you have questions or comments, if you were there, or if you want to ask questions of of our panel today, give us a call at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also send us questions to news at indiana public media dot org, and you can follow us on Twitter. At noon edition. So, Alex, I want to come back to you. So, you know, you you show up in Woodstock, uh, you two guys in a van, and you know what? What are some of your you know sharpest memories of of that? I mean, I know you've got tons of memories, but you could probably fill the show. But just mention one or two.
2: Well, sharpest memories for me were uh, Richie Havens. Uh, because Sweetwater was supposed to start and got stuck in traffic, and Richie Havens played for several hours. And um, I think that got the crowd uh, in kind of the right frame of mind. He was, he was extraordinary, uh, particularly his last song, Freedom. And then, um, you know, hearkening back to what Michael said about kind of the, the redefinition of love, I, I thought what I found interesting was— um, how much camaraderie there was amongst the attendees. You know, it rained, it was muddy, it got messy, um, and yet uh, people shared food, people shared shelter, interacted, spoke to one another. Uh, The townspeople were very hospitable. I remember driving down the road, and people had run hoses from their houses to allow us to get water. They were handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when the food ran out. So, you know, those are the things that were very impactful to me in addition to just the music.
1: Mm-hmm. And you talked about, the, you mentioned the weather. Uh, you know, it, there, was, there were horrible rainstorms, oh. right?
2: It rained, it rained Friday night. Then it rained Saturday. Um, I can't remember which band, but they had problems with equipment shorting out and the humidity afterwards. Then there was a thunderstorm on Sunday, which delayed a lot of the performances. That's why Jimi Hendrix didn't up and didn't end up playing until 6 o'clock in the morning on Monday. Mm -hmm.
1: And, Mark, I know that when you went to the 25th, Woodstock 25, the weather was
4: similar, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was a couple of inches of mud. And uh, I actually brought home my shoes and I kept them, you know, and, I, and <laughs> I I have them in my basement. And and I don't know why I did that, because, you know, the mud eventually dried and flaked off. But it was, uh, you know, you were walking around in a couple inches of mud mm-hmm. and rain. And it was, uh, uh, but again, so there was a had similar true experience. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a, a similar experience anyway. But, no, the same thing was people were very nice to each other. You know, they were cordial. I I can't imagine, um, you know, most audiences, the minute something goes wrong, they're very unhappy with things. So many things went wrong at Woodstock and the second Woodstock, and yet people were, were nice. They, they lived through it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: People were even picking up trash <coughs> and, and, and handing it back. The crowd was handing trash bags back over each other all the way to the back of uh, the field. And trying to keep the place as clean as possible, so you know those are the things that that really stood out.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Michael, when you think back on this, I mean, you mentioned this was sort of a, a you know a, a seminal moment for the counterculture. I mean, was this uh, you know the, why why do you have any idea why do you think this peace and love and we were in a big we were in a war in Vietnam at the time, and you know politics we'd just gotten through the nineteen sixty eight conventions and politics were kind of, um, well, they, they were pretty divisive, not quite like they are today, but they were pretty divisive at the time. Why do you think people came together so well?
3: A couple of reasons. First, the point about love, it's funny how cultural change occurs. It's, it's not some one person inventing it. It typically bubbles up in different places. And you see this arc within the music of a number of 60s groups in which they rethink love. The Beatles are a really good example of that. Of she loves you, it's a dyad, it's two people, to 1967, all you need is love, uh, performed in a communal way. Um, The Jefferson Airplane, uh, a West Coast band, are like that as well. So um, it's not only that music changed, though. The 60s are fascinating in music history because people's ideas idea about the importance of music changed. Uh, Instead of music being mainly entertainment and popular music mostly mediating the relationship between him and her, um, by the late 1960s, people not only see music uh, offering a, a kind of politics of love, but they believed that music had the power to change people. Uh, The founder of Rolling Stone uh, magazine, which started in 1967, uh, argues straightforwardly he wasn't the only one to say music is the only thing that structures the power of young people in the United States. It's the one thing that truly brings them together and creates the basis for change. And people believed that, and that's a really remarkable transformation of, of popular understanding of what music does. Which is why, in a funny way, Woodstock is not that important musically. Um, It's not even the pioneering rock music festival. Monterey Pop in 1967 arguably was, and it was better in some ways. Woodstock stands out really for the audience, um, including even just little visual cues. Monterey Pop, the audience sits on folding chairs all lined up in (laughs) rows. Uh, listening to Ravi Shankar and the Mamas and the Papas in 1969, as Alex knows better than I do, they're sprawled all over the place uh, and really are the focus of the attention.
1: You didn't have a folding chair?
2: I didn't have a folding <laughs> chair.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the music. I mean, you mentioned the Beatles, and I know um, John Lennon was invited, I think, at one point, but didn't. Go, do you, Michael? Do you Do you know I what happened there? I think
3: or? that's true. Yeah. Um, tour, touring had become so impossible, and public performing had become so impossible for the Beatles that they just didn't do it anymore mm-hmm. after '66. That's mm-hmm. what I know. Yeah.
2: Well, and he and he and Yoko were in, weren't they, in Amsterdam doing their sleep in that year, 1969? Earlier. I think that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and and speaking of the music, I mean, there are, are a lot of there were a lot of iconic performances. Um, but you know, as you said, the music wasn't that good. I think we were talking before the show, Michael, and you said a lot of people didn't really care for the music they were putting out at Woodstock.
3: Yeah. Um a good number of the performers at Woodstock even now say, well, you know, that wasn't our best set, or that night in Cleveland we were better, and it was the mics and the uh, our amps, and it, it's really quite striking. Um, one of my favorite moments of Woodstock is uh, John Sebastian, the ex-member of Loving Spoonful, singing on his own, uh, doing his song Younger Generation and forgetting the words, he claims, because he was so stoned. Um, but some of the nicest musical moments in Woodstock are these imperfections or things that are truly spontaneous. The Richie Haven's performance of Freedom is partly improvised. It
2: was extraordinary. Yeah,
3: and the, it's a reworking of sometimes I feel like a motherless child, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, really stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the unexpected moments. John Sebastian, did you, did yeah. you ever watch? Yeah. He ends this song, which is about a young father with his first child and realizing that he's now in a position of authority and that he doesn't necessarily know everything. Uh, The next to last verse, uh, the boy says, Dad, um, my best friend's only three. She's got a video phone and she's taking LSD. And because we're best friends, she's offered a drop to me. And what's the matter, Daddy? Why are you turning green? And... (laughs) The song ends and Sebastian sings it. What's the matter, Daddy? Can't you live up to your dream? And it's an incredible moment because he's laying out the possibility that Woodstock isn't going to work or it isn't going to transform. And even he realizes it. And as he pulls away from the mic, he says, but we can live up to our dreams. And which is it going to be? Really stunning.
1: Again, our phone numbers today, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can send us questions for the show at news at org, And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, Mark, so the music from 1969 uh, it obviously changed in 1994. But could you kind of compare the musical lineups?
4: Wow, it's it's hard to compare them. I mean, there were obviously Santana was the overlap, but you know, you had things in '94 in like Nine Inch Nails and Arrested Development, and it was a, I think you could call it a much wider swath of of popular music. Um, and I don't know what uh, you know. I, I, I'm sure that there were people who were annoyed by one band or another, but I guess there probably were that at the original sure. Woodstock sure. as well. Um, you know, again, the quality of the music was was really good, but it wasn't it just wasn't as important as uh, as '69. And you know, as far as uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix' uh, um, "Star Spangled Banner" and "Soul Sacrifice" by Santana, and there are other you know seminal performances in 1969 that you know really marked that festival. I mean. Whether it was great musically or perfect musically, it was probably the perfect storm, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to ask Alex about. Um, so one of the one of the songs I remember the most from that was "Country Joe and the Fish." Oh yeah. Know? And so, was there a strong anti-war sentiment at the at the the festival?
2: Um, you know, I don't know that it was talked about, but it was it was clearly there. You know, '69 was. A crazy year, um, you know. Uh, there was so much going on. There were pro- there was probably more conversation about Stonewall than there was about the war at that point because it had been so recent. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was it was it was it was there in front of us because it was part of who we were and it was part of our our growing up. You know, I I heard someone talking about just leaving the military and being at Woodstock and worrying about being accepted there because they had short hair and, and how delighted they were that people were so kind and, and that it didn't make any difference. But mm-hmm. uh, there was more conversation to, at least within the group that I was with about Stonewall than there was about the war at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were part of the counterculture?
2: Um. Yeah, I felt like I was part of it even after after two years of college just because I was on a campus that was pretty activist against against the war. We had a very um, strong ROTC program on campus, and so um, there was a there was a strong resistance growing on campus at that point.
3: Mm-hmm. When you ask about feeling uh, if, if Alex felt like part of the counterculture, part of the function of of music festivals was to be a kind of temporary countercultural utopia where you could go and experience these transformative things, the music drugs if you wanted to, a certain set of values, that you, even if you weren't going to go and be a hippie, but it was a chance to be those things. And you see that in reminiscences of people who went to Woodstock, who would say, this is the the most hippie-ish thing I did, or it introduced me to those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that element of it, and that's one of the reasons why Woodstock and other festivals became so popular. It, it was like uh, visiting Haight-Ashbury or a hippie neighborhood, uh, visiting a commune but centered on music and, again, this notion that music would, would change you.
1: Mm-hmm. So I did – I was looking at just doing a big Google search, which is always kind of dangerous because you find out all sorts of – all sorts of things that are presented as fact. One of the things I found – I think it was on BuzzFeed – was that 90 uh, percent of the people who were at Woodstock were using – were smoking marijuana. I don't know if that's true. Not true. I don't know where that statistic came from. But the, uh, you know, how did this fit into the sort of the, the the growing drug culture of the day? And Michael, Alex, either one of you. You were ten. Yeah, I was so, I are, are
2: you going to ask me if I inhaled? No,
1: I'm not. Asking. I did. Okay, all right. I did. You can offer that um, if you want. You know,
2: I think there was uh, a strong presence of of marijuana there there was some other dru- there were some other drugs and there were some concerns about some of the drugs being tainted but i don't think people came there just to get high it was um, it was something that people did to enhance the experience or to enhance their enjoyment of the music Lord, I, I just found out that Santana was on mescaline when he got up to perform. <laughs> that Jerry Garcia had given it to him, and 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 there he was. But yeah, it was it was part of the culture. You know, I don't I don't know that I paid that much attention to it, mm-hmm. but it was there.
3: Michael, the the original ads, the posters for Woodstock are interesting because yeah. they they present they, they don't present drugs, but they present this whole cultural expression—not just music, but that there were going to be crafts. Uh, and art projects. They so, called it the
2: Aquarian Exposition.
3: Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah. All
1: right. We're going to take a short break. I think uh, hopefully we're going to start to get some phone calls for the second half of the program. But we're going to take a short break. We're talking with Mark Allen, former indie Star music critic, Michael McGur, professor in the Indiana University Department of History, and Alex Jacku, who was a 19-year-old who went to Woodstock <laughs> with two guys in a van. We're talking <laughs> about Woodstock today. We'll be right back.
0: From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. We're talking about Woodstock today. It's 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Today would have been 50 years ago, the second day of the festival in New York. We have three guests with us. Alex Jaku was was there uh, 50 years ago, and she's reminiscing with us a little bit. We've got Michael McGurr, professor in the Indiana University Department of History, and he teaches a course on the 60s. And Mark Allen is a former indie star, music critic, and also wrote for Nuvo, and he's just been a, a, a student of music and uh, is very knowledgeable in this area as well. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 855-812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at org. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm going to get to the phones in just a minute. But uh, when we're on break, Mark asked Alex a question. I wanted to just repeat it because I thought it was a good question. question.
4: Um, What I was wondering was when you're in the middle of something like Woodstock, do you recognize it as a phenomenon or um, do you not know until later?
2: I didn't know until later. You know, I, I think when you're in the moment, you're enjoying your surroundings and you're enjoying the music and everything else that went with it. And it wasn't until much later as I started thinking about those experiences and the reactions that people had and, and the townspeople and even the police, um, how meaningful it was and how special that, those interactions were.
1: Okay. We're going to go to the phones now. We have Ed on the line. Ed? Hello. Hello, Ed. Go ahead.
5: Okay, um, I'm Woodstock Generation. We almost went, my wife Wendy and I, but we actually decided not to. The question I've got is sort of two-part related. It seems to me from watching the TV special that most of the people there were white, middle-class kids. And I'm wondering if there's ever been any study of following any of these people through their lives to see... You know, did they stay liberal? Did they become right wingers? What what happened? You know, because nothing, yeah, nothing. Did they contribute to society? Because it seems like, you know, well, look where we are now. We never amounted to a hill of beans, though we did end the war in Vietnam.
1: Michael, you want to take that as a historian?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> um, sure. Um, I, I think it raises an important question that that you get all the time. First, um, h- history is a constructed thing, and it's usually – it it occurs really as people think about events over time. It's very seldom in the moment that you find people saying, you know, dear diary, I made history tonight mm-hmm. or I witnessed history, and it took time. Uh, the second thing is that uh, – it gets back to the point of the Rolling Stone founder about the power of music um, – he believe how do you how do you prove that music changes the way you feel uh, or what you are? Again, we're not prone to say that song transformed my political views or it made me do X and Y. There have been studies of people in Woodstock; they have tended to be liberal over time. I think um, my favorite statistic, my favorite notion about the power of Woodstock, is the moment uh, reference with Country Joe MacDonald, Uh, When he opens up uh, with the fish cheer, uh, the 400,000 people yelling, give me an F, F, you, Mm -hmm. your audience is hip enough to fill in (laughs) the blanks. And they sing the I feel like I'm fixing to die rag, which is this really dark sardonic song about the war in Vietnam. Richard Nixon hears about this from his aides and puts country Joe on his enemies list. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a kind of power, I mean, Nixon, who was attuned to power, clearly thought, that there was something. But again, that's the hard question about about culture in our lives. It's easy to say a war killed X thousand people. It's much harder to say what motivated thousands of people to oppose the war. All right, Ed, do you have a second question?
5: Well, that was the related. And and I'm wondering: is it true that most of these kids were white, middle class? I, I saw very, very few blacks in the, in the you know, three-hour, two-hour TV program. I didn't go.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, what did well, you, you see?
2: You know, I, I don't know Out that I, I recall a lot of white, middle-class people. I was a, uh, a naturalized American citizen of refugee parents who would have killed me if they'd known I was there. Um, and there were people of color, and there were um, clearly uh, both genders. I don't know that it mattered that much. I think that the location of the concert probably tended to pull from the cities in New York more than any place else. And uh, to my recollection, there were people of color there, um, but I couldn't be specific about what the percentages might have been.
4: But that's true of almost any concert you go to. I mean, if it's a rock concert, it's going to be largely white.
1: Mm -hmm. But if you look at the, some of the uh, most iconic performances, they were people of color. They were. Yes. So.
3: Michael? Because their creativity had been driving popular music for a long time. But some, at the time Woodstock happened, African-American musicians were still working through what had happened to rock and roll, the ways in which it was or wasn't appropriated by whites. and. You have musicians such as James Brown uh, having a huge hit with a song, uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and dealing with the consequences of that for his audience, which was narrowing uh, toward a, a much more African-American separate demographic again. Black musicians were wary in some ways of the counterculture and were moving creatively toward other kinds of music. Um white musicians at Woodstock their taste tended to be rooted in in the blues in earlier african american music and not so much what was happening at that time i do want to say to you know that the woodstock film is a very artfully constructed to try to create an impression of of blacks and whites together there are a couple of points where you see that and that wasn't entirely true or those that what was depicted was true but that was one of the problems of the, cult- the counterculture, as Caller really is rightly saying, that it was unable to transcend uh, some of the divides. The same thing is true with respect to gender. There, Within two years, early uh, feminist activists who were involved in music were condemning Woodstock uh, for portraying women as taking care of babies. Uh, and serving as visual objects, um, and not really part of the power structure of music.
1: There, yeah, I've got a list of the thirty-two different acts, and it looks like there are very few that were women. Melanie, Joan Baez, Janis Joplin. I don't really see uh,
2: Gracie Slick.
1: Gracie Slick, yeah. So there just weren't weren't very many in the thirty-two. So.
3: Yeah. And part of the argument was that women could strum guitars and could sing, but that they really wouldn't be allowed to play uh, electric guitars or to have uh, all-female bands. Mm -hmm. And there weren't. What was was that like in 94? Um, Had there been any advancement,
1: if you can remember, back those 25 years? I don't
4: know that that there had been, at that point, much advancement. I mean, I can – Recall um, Melissa Etheridge talking to her and and you know just musing if you had been born Michael instead of Melissa, do you think you'd have a better career? And she said, "Oh yeah." Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I don't know that the, the, the advancement was slow, and then uh, I think it's it's been speeded up by pop more now than than anything else, mm-hmm. and, you know, with Pink and Katy Perry and all those mm-hmm. uh, performers, but. Um, no. I guess that's the short answer. No.
1: All right. If you have a question or a comment uh, about Woodstock, give us a call at uh, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And you can also uh, send us questions to the show at news at indiana org. I wanted to ask you um, – Michael, about how how your students uh, today, you know, today's eighteen to twenty two year olds, how do they view Woodstock when you start talking about it?
3: Um, I know that's they, a, you, you can't generalize. I'm sure. Well, but. they're they're fascinated by it. They're they're fascinated by the '60s generally, and for a good reason. Um, for them, the 1960s are the this time over the hill in which the United States is clearly different, in which people believe uh, that the words of Lyndon Johnson, we can do anything. Um, Woodstock is, you know, much as the Woodstock crowd wouldn't have cared for Lyndon Johnson that much, they shared some of the same notion that the United States, we can do it all, we can can achieve these things. Um, So the 60s stands out in in American history as the most recent period in which there's a kind of broad optimism across um, across people's politics, and students are attracted to that in their in their own diversity, in the diversity of their own politics. Um, IU is not any different from any other university in that way. So they find it strangely compelling. It's funny for me because the last thing you want to be is an aging baby boomer, is an aging baby boomer who just goes on and on about how (laughs) wonderful it was. And, you know, you people are terrible and you're not going to get Social Security. Um, But there there is a fascination with it. There's a reason I don't teach a course on the 70s, my own (laughs) collegiate years, um, or or the 80s.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Alex, I want to go back to to your time at Woodstock 50 years ago because no, none of the rest of us in the room were there. And if anybody out there uh, listening was there and you want to call in with your uh, your memories or your observations, please feel free to do so. But you were there for three days. You said you mm-hmm. heard the, the final yeah. concert as well. So you heard the first concert. And you Actually, heard
2: the, it ended up being four days because four days. it was Monday. It was uh-huh. Monday morning when Jimi Hendrix finished up.
1: Mm-hmm. 6 a.m., right?
2: it was 9 9 a.m. when he he, he, uh, played the Star-Spangled Banner.
1: So when you think back to those three days, I mean, is it – how should I put this? Is it sort of romanticized in your mind? Or do you remember sometimes when you were thinking, man, why why was I even there?
2: There was more of the man, why am I even here? (laughs) Um, We were wet. Um, We were muddy. Um, We were hungry. It was crowded. The trash smelled. Uh, the music quality was not always good because the equipment was wet a lot of the time because of the rain. Um, and and I don't mean to downplay the the positive aspect of it, but it was it was it was work getting to a festival that ended up being four hundred thousand people, and finding a place to put a van and then slogging your way to the venue.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you meet a lot of people?
2: Yeah, I did.
1: Yeah. Do you keep in touch with anybody?
2: Um, I keep in touch with a couple of people, but mm-hmm. you know, those are the kind of people you meet at concerts. It's not like let me have your email address and, and we'll stay in touch. <laughs>
1: Certainly not and, fifty years ago.
2: Yeah, and nobody. If you had
4: asked for their email address in yeah. nineteen sixty-nine, that would have been something.
2: Yeah, <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody had cell phones and social media, and I'm I'm grateful for that piece of it. Mm-hmm. But um, it was more in the moment.
3: Mm-hmm. It's That's fascinating. There, there are people who argue that one of the reasons uh, that music mattered so much in the 1960s was not only the convergence of politics, the Vietnam War, the rise of a middle class lifestyle that could let its children live well, um, but that music was still something you had to work for, that it was an effort to go to a concert. It wasn't automatic. It wasn't online. Um, and so one argument now is that music has less social significance precisely because it's so utterly and universally and easily available and not mm-hmm. the product of uh, blood, sweat and tears.
4: I would say that it's mm-hmm. it's more because um, in, in the 60s, people had common culture. We don't have common culture now. We don't listen to the same music. You can be sitting next to somebody – in a room and have no idea what their music is. I mean, yep. then I, you know, I always like it when you when you watch an old show like Mash and everybody knew the same song. And now you know what what songs could the four of us sing? You know, maybe Happy Birthday and the national anthem and the you know that's that's about that's it. A right? Beatles song. Right, We're right.
3: not going to do yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> no, and,
4: I, and America the Beautiful. But we don't have you know in a big broad room. We don't have common culture. They did. Mm-hmm.
1: But isn't it, isn't it true that – I mean I, 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 there are a lot of students I think today that still hang on to some of the music that we thought was great music. The Beatles, for instance. Don't the Beatles kind of cross all generations?
3: They appear to. <laughs> no, I, again, there's a striking amount of interest in it. Um, Two things can get you in trouble teaching. One of them is trying to talk about the Civil War in front of uh, students who know about the second hour of the second day of Chickamauga and where Rosecrans was on the hill. And uh, the other one is the history of the Beatles, too. And Mm -hmm. it's surprising to me how many students do know a a fair amount about them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So we still have about uh, 12 minutes to go on the program if you want to give us a call and talk to us about – woodstock 's fiftieth fiftieth uh, anniversary fiftieth birthday Give us a call at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in bloomington or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight You can also send us questions for the show at news at indiana and you can follow us on Twitter. At Noon Edition. Uh, so, what Michael just said about, and what what you just said as well, uh, Mark, about this common experience. You know, I am kind of struck that music is so accessible today. Though it's, it seems like it's more accessible than it was then. And you know, to me, it's almost my intuition says, well, it's it's more a part of people's lives today than it was then.
4: Oh, it may be part of people's lives, but it's not all the same. We're not sharing the the music you know i I just find it amazing you know i I will look at when I was uh, a kid if a band was big enough to play Madison Square Garden and I grew up in New York and if they were big enough to play Madison Square Garden, people knew who they were now you can have somebody play Madison Square Garden that that the large majority of people don't know who they are you know it's very very um walled off separated and that's that's i think one of the one of the problems i mean it's nice to be able to to choose the music you like to to listen to but if you're not sharing it with other people then i think you're missing part of the experience
2: and, and i think it's the experiential part that really drew people to woodstock i mean i the who played at woodstock and then i remember being on campus at the University of Rochester in a large auditorium and the Who playing for Homecoming Weekend. And the two experiences were so incredibly different. Sitting on a bunch of bleachers in, with, a, with a group of people was different than the experience of of Woodstock, And and it wasn't just the music. It was the people you were with, and it was the venue.
1: So I have to say, I saw the Who at the Indiana State Fair. There you go. And they... They were not the the head the headliner. That was Herman's Hermits. So. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we have three phone calls we're going to get to. Uh, so let's go to Terry next. Terry?
6: Hi.
1: Hi, hi Terry. Um, yeah, how's it going? Good. And hi,
6: Bob Zollsberg. Hi. Uh, <laughs> long time ago speak to Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, uh, mainly I have observations about Woodstock. Wood I was 16, and I had a chance to go, but... I was in a band at the time. We had a gig that uh, weekend, so I didn't get to go. But uh, I think Woodstock is extremely important, even today, because it opened up doors. In my view, opened up doors to a lot of different ideas, and it kind of took it kind of took the curtains down from should we do this, should we say this, should we think this, and uh, it kind of the ad, the advertisement for Woodstock was three days of peace and love and music. And it, they actually fulfilled that. Uh, very few uh, fights or a very little violence broke out. Uh, at least that was re- uh, recorded or anything, anything like that. But it, it, it was very important and it's still important. I think that's one reason why people still go back to the initial Woodstock because it, it set the ground rules Thanks to the Beatles, by the way, uh, for their preaching of love and and harmony and staying together and working together. Um, And a lot of uh, Big X also, uh, my second comment, uh, came from Woodstock. With uh, Santana playing, uh, Neil Sean and Greg Rowley, who was the guitar player and keyboard player uh, with Carlos Santana, they went on the form journey. And so I, I think it's, uh, and, and other the other uh, musicians from that uh, show did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it was very important culturally, politically, um, even and even on racial aspects. Because even though there may not have been a lot of black people there that uh, were noted uh, in the audience, it's it's opened up the doors for feminism, for racial integra- integration in a social context, and. Uh, it's something we really need to pay attention to today. How did that work? What were the mindsets to help that uh, become such a an iconic and necessary historical event?
1: All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna turn to the panel see if they want to comment on on your comments. Thanks, Terry. We appreciate it.
4: I'm okay with, with what he said. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
3: Any any reaction? Well. I I do and don't agree with that. I mean, on Mm -hmm. one one hand, Woodstock's an indication of how uh, capitalism can serve a democratic purpose by spreading music, enabling uh, young people to be drawn together. But it's hard – again, the music business was fairly segregated uh, by the end of the 60s, again – um, and, you know, we're four years away from the emergence of hip-hop in the Bronx in New York, just to be reminded of what an enormous fissure is, is there. And then, as I say, um, for, for women, Woodstock – for some women, some feminist women, Woodstock was a provocation, not a celebration. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and so Motown was big at the time, right? But there was no Motown influence at- woodstock no. we go. okay we're going to go back to the phones tim is next tim hello hi tim how are you
7: bob i'm going to be talking to you about something else later but i uh was not at woodstock but i could have been i grew up in new york state in orange county in the town of wallkill which was where the woodstock festival was originally supposed to be held and uh, i i heard that again on cnn last night sort of surprised me but the town fathers and i'm sure they were all fathers were worrying about what this thing was going to be and so they they raised a big ruckus and they said we're not going to have that rock concert in our backyard so it moved up one county from further from new york city to sullivan county which was always the uh, the uh, catskill mountains and uh, a farmer there agreed to let them use his uh his big uh, acreage and i often wondered about how history would have uh, been different if they had stayed uh, there in orange county which is where I grew up. So my wife said to me, did you go? And I thought to myself, I don't think my parents would have uh, uh, wanted me to go or permitted me to go. I was already out exercising my occupation, but I had just come back for a few weeks to visit with them, and I could see people on the highways heading up towards Sullivan County for this great and famous uh, Concert, but I didn't get to go myself. But it sure made an impact on the world.
1: All right, Tim, thanks a lot. Did, the, Alex's parents didn't stop her, so when <laughs> she went. Thanks, Tim. We appreciate it. Um, it. Would have been different if it had been held in some other location. I, I, I don't, guess we I don't, don't think
2: so. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, I think it would have been different if people had been sitting on folding chairs like they were at Monterey. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, it's. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. It was one county over.
3: Right. If it had been closer to New York City, New York media, New York City media would have covered it more and shaped perception more. But instead, it's the movie, uh, mm-hmm. whether you like the movie or not, that did the most to shape the broader understanding of Woodstock and what it was. Uh,
1: and I actually f- fifteen-second review of the movie, yeah, Alex. Um, no, <laughs> I actually
2: think the fact that the media wasn't there made it more impactful because mm-hmm. I think it would have been reported differently.
1: Okay. We've got one more phone call wait, waiting to talk to us, so let's go to James now. James?
6: Hi, yes. I would like to thank you first. I've listened to uh, Noon Edition for years, and this is probably one of the best programs that you have presented. Thanks. I, I had just gotten out of the service in 69, and I'm, uh-huh. I, I regret to this day that I was not there. I do have a question. Where did the people park? Was there a shuttle service from the parking area to the arena or what? There were,
2: there, there were no Thank shuttles. You. There was no arena. Um, there were farm fields and people parked in the fields. Some of them got stuck in the mud. Uh, some townspeople allowed people to park in their driveways and plug into their utilities some people left their cars abandoned on the side of the road and walked the rest of the way. Um, there, re- it was it's, it was country. It was the Catskill Mountains, so there weren't a whole lot of places to park, and you know the vehicles were a little different then. So multiple groups would come in in a large vehicle and uh, and walk. So no, and there was no valet parking either.
1: <laughs> a lot of VW buses, I bet. A lot of
2: vans. <laughs>
6: I have just gotten a VW myself, <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed the program. Thank you very much. All
1: right. Thank you for your comments. Sure. Thanks, James. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Bye. All right. So we've got just about two or three minutes uh, left to go. So I, I guess um, I want to turn to to Mark again and talk about you know the could could anything like this happen today? In your opinion. <clears throat>
4: No, because it, I, because I think it's that was spontaneous. I mean, that came together. First of all, they didn't expect that no. kind of a crowd, and, um, and and so the short answer, no. The long answer, um, if you advertise something, well, obviously, first of all, they tried to do a fiftieth anniversary concert and it failed. So, but you couldn't put together something like this because people would know that it was, you know, I have to be there, and that's what the 25th anniversary was. It was a, you know, oh, uh, I didn't get to the first one. I better get to the second one. You know, it's the sequel to the movie, so I I think no.
1: Okay. We want to go back to the phones really quickly. Uh, Wendy, you've got a quick comment?
2: Yeah. I just was so impressed that the event was conceived of and started by entrepreneurs, and they – gave up the idea of making money when they realized they couldn't get the fences built because they had to change locations. And they problem solved and they were so generous and altruistic as were all the people of the area and the participants. And to me, that is what is so spectacular about Woodstock, that it stopped, it was started by people wanting to make up, make money, they gave that idea up and they created history
3: and culture.
1: All right. Thank you, Wendy. Michael's got a little comment I think he wants to make.
3: Well, the producers uh, led by uh, Michael Wang is his name, uh, they did intend to make money. They had a film deal. Uh, they certainly took risks, and they did have a problem collecting on their tickets. Uh, it took them a while to get in the black, but get in the black they did, Uh with that film and have remained so this year when, for the first time, the full uh, 99.5% of the music played at Woodstock has now been re-released um, in the last month, much of it for the first time. So th- this was a basic tension in music festivals, that uh, if music was supposed to bind to be people together and be transformative and political, it ought to be free. Well, for the musicians, for promoters, that was a problematic thing.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a difference. Sometimes you're altruistic, and sometimes you have altruism forced on you, yes. and that's what happens.
1: <laughs> All right, we're out of time. I want to thank you, as, uh, as our, our one caller said. Great show today. I want to thank you very much. Um, our guests, Mark Allen, Michael McGurr, and, and Alex Jacu, uh Four producers, Kathy Knapp and Emma Atkinson, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for
0: listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at hoosiersoutruncancer.org.